as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I think it's useful and important to be clear what we mean when we say, when we talk about Christ coming. It's the, that's sort of the great um, watch phrase of Advent, isn't it? We talk, I mean, it's in that opening acclamation, surely the Lord is coming soon. We're going to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, um, as our bringing forward of the offertory in Advent. And, you know, this idea of, O come, O come, come, Lord, Lord Jesus. What do we mean when we talk about Christ coming? The reason I want to clarify is because um, there's a naturally built-in misunderstanding just with the word come. Because usually when we talk about someone coming in the world that we know, it means like leaving one place to come to some other place where he wasn't already before. But that's not the case with Jesus, right? Because he's already here with us by his Holy Spirit. We know that Christ lives in our hearts. We know that... um, Christ, as God, is already sort of everywhere and can hear our prayer. So when we talk about him coming, w- what are we talking about? Right? Where was he? He's not leaving some place to come to some other place. Speaking about Christ's coming is using a human word to try and capture the, the action or the motion of God um, with human language to describe something that's much bigger than human language can convey. Um, we do this actually all the time. We use such language um, where we're describing how it appears to us, even though we know a lot more is going on. So like, for, in- for instance, we talk about sunrise and sunset, right? But you only have to go a couple grades into school to know that, oh, no, the sun isn't rising and setting, right? We're going around, we're, the earth is spinning, and we're going around the sun. And, you know, you, you can learn about the bigger picture, even though it does appear like it's coming here and then going away. So we keep using that language of sunrise and sunset, um, even though we know that there's a, a more accurate way to describe what's, what's happening. Same thing with the coming of Christ. Certainly the language of Christ's coming is given to us by Scripture, so it's good language. And it's certainly how it will appear. The, the great day of the Lord will look like he's coming. But the Bible also uses an, another word to describe the same kind of realities, which I think kind of gets at that bigger solar system view picture. And that word we heard in 1 Corinthians 1, revealing revealing, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, uncovering, the exposing of what was there all along, you just couldn't see it. We have a a metaphor at hand, as I'm sure many of you put up a Christmas tree, think about a Christmas present that's wrapped up. It's right there, but you don't know what it is yet, right, until it's uncovered. The Greek word that's translated as revealing in 1 Corinthians is apocalypsis, which if that suggests to your mind apocalypse, that's exactly right. Because when we speak of the apocalypse, we're referring to the great revelation of Jesus in heaven, right? The second coming, the day of judgment, the last day, the day of the Lord. These are all biblical names for one and the same day, which Jesus prophesied as we heard about in our gospel. The day when we will see him, when the angels are sent out to the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven, and all the ones that God has called through Jesus to himself, are gathered to him forever. That will be, that's the apocalypse. And it is also an apocalypsis, an uncovering, a, a, rev- a revealing. Because as we heard very ably last Sunday from Lincoln, Jesus is already 
on his throne ruling over the cosmos. Right? That doesn't sort of happen on the last day. Right? It just gets revealed on the last day. What is now unseen will become visible. We will see it. It'll look like he's coming, but in reality, he's just revealing himself to us. It's an apocalypsis. And that's the chief meaning of apocalypsis in the Bible. If you run a word search of that, um, it usually refers to the great uncovering on the last day. But it's not the only way in which this word is used. There's actually two other um, lesser apocalypses spoken of in the scriptures in which Christ is revealed to us, but we experience it as a coming to us. So the first, of course, is Christmas, right? Um, I didn't know until this week that uh, you know the canticle that if you ever say evening prayer, you know it, the Lord now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. You know that canticle? Vaguely familiar? For these eyes of mine have seen the Savior. A light to enlighten the nations. I didn't realize the Greek word there is apocalypsis. A light to, to give the Gentiles an apocalypse. I think that would be a, a, better, a cool translation to try out. But. Um, when Christ came at Christmas, when he's born of the Virgin Mary, it was an unveiling of who he was. I want to say um, two things about that. One is that when we speak about the life of Jesus in the past, it's still also for us the present. Not just by, not try, the church is not trying to be poetic. Like when we talk about, like in the Eucharistic liturgy, when we say Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, right? it's because his sacrifice is still present. It still exists. I think the nearest human analogy would be like if you do something monumental as a human, the, the, the accolade sticks with you forever. Right? If you win an Olympic medal, you don't talk past tense, oh yeah, I, I, once upon a time I won an Olympic medal. No, you are an Olympian, like kind of forever after that, right? You will get a Nobel Prize, you're just the Nobel laureate. You don't talk about it past tense. Right? So when Christ was born in history, but he, we can still say Christ is risen, Christ is sacrificed, and Christ is born. It remains part of his identity as he sits in heaven. The second thing is, um, it's actually, uh, clearly the, the, the coming of Christmas is a, is a revealing because it actually wasn't when Christ, when the Son of God came into the world, right? That was nine months before Christmas. Jesus was in the world. He had a human nature. He was a full human being in, in Mary's womb, right? For nine months, he was hidden to the world, but he was on earth in Mary's belly. It was on Christmas Day where he reveals himself, and that's why Epiphany immediately follows Christmas, because it's a now you can see what has happened uh, in the Incarnation. So those are the um, two of the meanings of, of apocalypsis, of uncovering, the, the uncovering on the last day, second coming, the uncovering at Christmas. And there's a third way in which the scripture speaks about God uncovering himself, apocalypse, the, an apocalypse, and that's a spiritual apocalypse, a spiritual uncovering. Just to give you an example, St. Paul, when he describes his own receiving of the gospel, he describes it in Galatians 1, he says, I received it, the gospel, through a revelation, through an apocalypsis of Christ Jesus. He prays for the Ephesians in chapter 1. So who, these are already Christians, right? And he says, I pray that God will give you an apocalypsis, a revelation, an uncovering of himself. This sort of sp spiritual apocalypsis is um, it's a spiritual experience of, of revelation of sort of when all the truths that we know and sort of 
confess to belief, there's a click to the mind. And there's that sense of like seeing it, like, oh yeah, I get it, right? There's something sort of in, almost intuitive about the truth of it. And that is the experience of, of knowing God for yourself, not just saying the words that other people say about God, but actually having those realities of which those words speak laid bare to your own mind and to your own soul. It's a transformative experience. And sometimes it's loud and dramatic, like St. Paul on Damascus Road, this sort of like, whoom, apocalypse, right? But more often than not, it's actually a very quiet experience, often in the quiet of prayer by yourself, um, or sometimes maybe here at church, or others, it could, I guess it could be any setting. It's not always this sort of earth-shattering moment. It's just this moment where the heart sees. But when the heart sees, it's not because you're a prodigy. None of us are prodigies. We're all equal before God. It's because God has uncovered himself through the Spirit to your own mind and to your own heart. God can give this revelation whenever, wherever, to whomever he likes, because he's the one uncovering. It's not us doing it. But there are many stories in the Bible and a lot of testimonies in church history that show that God often relies on two instruments to precipitate these uncoverings. So think about a, a, a curtain on a theater stage that's hiding what's on the stage, and there's like two drawstrings that pull the curtains apart. The two drawstrings that um, Christians testify to that the Lord uses are the sacred calendar and spiritual preparation. Now, growing up Baptist, I had no paradigm for the sacred calendar, so this was new to me when I first encountered it back in, uh, in college. And I at first was kind of suspicious, like, yeah, right, God works on a calendar. <laughs> but then when you look at Scripture, it's, it's, very, it's somewhat surprising to see how often God works through the calendar. What day did the Lord orchestrate to raise his son from the dead? Passover, right? The sacred calendar day established as Passover. What day did the Lord deign when he just said, okay, disciples, wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. What day did the Spirit actually come? Pentecost. What was Pentecost? That's the Greek word for the Feast of Weeks, the sacred calendar day, one of three great sacred calendar days under the Old Covenant. God was using the calendar. And with preparation, when we see the people to whom God reveals himself, what are they often doing right beforehand? Spiritually preparing themselves through fasting and prayer. Think of Anna and Simeon in the temple that we'll celebrate on February 2nd, the presentation. What were Anna and Simeon doing in the temple prior to getting to hold the baby Jesus for themselves? Fasting and praying. And they, were, they were preparing themselves, and therefore they were made ready to receive the apocalypse. So what I want to say is that the idea of um, really, really seeking to live into the sacred calendar isn't like a man-made invention of the church. I do believe with all my heart it was ordained and blessed by God for us. You know, there's a lot of fluff that goes around every year around Advent about, oh, Christmas is just Christian corruption of pagan holidays. And it drives me crazy because the only pagan part about it is that some of the decorative trappings, like the fact we use evergreen, you know, was we brought from our like Germanic heritage or, or Scandinavian heritage or whatever. But it's the decorative trappings. The feast itself, Christmas, isn't any imitation of um, a pagan holiday, and say, oh, it's the winter solstice. No, that's December 21st, right? Christmas is December 25th. In fact, um, liturgical scholars think that uh, the winter solstice in, in the Roman era had become this sort of like lame duck holiday. I think the nearest equivalent for us would be like Columbus Day, 
We're like, we know what to do for Thanksgiving. We know what to do for Independence Day, Memorial Day. We've got rituals for that. What do you do for Columbus Day, you know? The, the Saturnalia in December in the, was sort of one of those. But then when Christians started really keeping Christmas, the pagans were like, well, we don't want them to steal all the thunder. And they tried to beef up the pagan holiday to match Christian Christmas. So they're the, the copiers, I think, according to liturgical history. Um, this idea of not just commemorating as like, oh, look, there it is on the calendar, but trying to, as the body of Christ, live into the things that still mark the body of Christ. His, his body is still a born body. According to the sacred calendar, we're actually following um, a pattern that God would have us follow. And I do believe, uh, and the church testifies to for long centuries, that God, in, a, in his mysterious economy, has um, promised and attached a special spiritual blessing with the keeping of the great holy days of Christmas and Easter. All the holy days, but especially the great two. What I mean by that is that a special apocalypse, a special uncovering of his truth for the, the soul who comes looking for it. I actually learned this from my dad, who even though he didn't keep the liturgical calendar at all, every Christmas he would pray for the week sitting up, God, could you give me a gift of insight this Christmas, a fresh appreciation for your mystery? Um, so he was inhabiting a very Catholic mindset um, in doing that. When we keep um, the holy days earnestly, God has a spiritual blessing for us. Now, it might be big and felt in the sort of very emotion, also emotional experience, or it might be quiet, the still small voice, but there is a promise to be had by devout keeping of Christmas and Easter. And that's why the church has these seasons of preparation of Advent and Lent. The season is because God doesn't work mechanistically. He's not a vending machine. Like, oh, it's Christmas, time for my blessing. Right. The scripture over and over says that it's the thirsty soul that gets the drink. It's the hungry mouth that gets the food. It's the poor that are blessed with spiritual riches. So we are to long for a coming of Christ afresh to us. So I encourage you today, first Sunday of Advent, fix in your mind December 25th and ask, Lord, Give me a spiritual uncovering. I want to know your truth more deeply. Open my eyes. Start longing for that. And then use Advent as this season to sort of like cultivate that thirst. That when Christmas comes, like, Lord, I really want you. In the same way you revealed yourself in a stable in, in Bethlehem. Reveal yourself to me. I want to know you more. That's why Advent is kept with increased prayers, a little fasting. Not the same as Lent, uh, but some, I encourage you to, some self-denial. I'm kind of trying a new thing this year with our family, because it's tricky to balance, I think, Advent and just the general season and the culture, of sort of like ramping up to the feast. That I'm not gonna think about like a fully austere, like four weeks, but to think about beginning vigil as vigilantly as I can, and then slowly, you know, kind of allowing the festivity to kind of creep in and having it kind of build throughout Advent so that when Christmas comes, it's, you know, uh, bust out the bells and all the best food. Um, but as a way of trying to keep a spirit of vigilance and fasting in the midst of, a, you know, the time when all the cakes and foods are being circulated and, and shared. Just to, to loop back around to conclude with that sunrise sunset picture, if you're in a house with no windows, who, you have no idea what's happening with sunrise or sunset. Small acts of self-denial, whether it's the self-denial of 
using your time to pray rather than just for leisure, or your self-denial of denying yourself a luxury good on a particular day, um, or just or whatever it may be. Um, that's sort of like stepping out of the windowless house to make yourself there to be able to see the sunrise. That's how that works. Like, so that when Christmas comes, we're prepared, we're ready. And it's like, Lord, I'm ready. Shine your light on me. Give me a spiritual uncovering, an apocalypse. And Advent, in this sort of wonderful way, it's like a three, um, like a three-stranded braid, which I'm just learning to do on Lucy's hair. <laughs> Not very well yet. Um, a three-stranded braid of remembering his first uncovering, looking ahead to his great second uncovering, the apocalypse, but also in this year, 2020, asking, Lord, that third strand, uncover yourself more fully, let me see you more fully. So I pray that your Advent is blessed, not just in some hallmarky, cozy way, but blessed with thirst, with actually a dissatisfaction of longing for something that you don't have, that you, the Lord will supply to you uh, of his mercy at Christmas. Amen.